and welcome aboard the Giddy Carousel of Pop, a podcast all about top pop mag smash hits. And what we do is take an old issue, usually from the 80s, although we may slide a year or two either side of that, and have a good poke around its pages with a guest. I'm Simon Galloway, and joining me, as always, he's the peaches to my herb. We're reunited, and it feels so good. It's Mr. Gavin Hogg. Oh, Si, of all the introductions you've given me, I think that was the loveliest yet. Thank you. It was better than calling you a ruddy big pig, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah, fair do. <laughs> and uh, I believe you've got a few hellos and shout-outs for, uh, for the pop kids out there. I have, yeah. The Carousel Massive were swinging into action uh, the other night. I put a little tweet out, just seeing if anyone wanted a little hello on today's show and uh, got responses from quite a few people. So thank you for being our friends and Twitter followers to our previous guest, Kath Sked, Circuit 3, JJ Vinyl Record Shop, Pop Rambler, Pete Brasted, Rob Pryor, Rachel Gallatly, Free With This Month's Issue, Mr. Beaner himself, John Dredge, uh, Louise Gardner, who lives in Sydney in Australia. Ooh. That's good, isn't it? We've got listeners in Sydney. And Debbie Pritchard from the Gold Coast. Uh, also, John Mulligan, Andy AVAV Systems, Rob Freeman, Freddie Valentine, Luke Reader, Richard Drew, and last but by no means least, Jonathan Wilkins. Thank you very much, people. Yeah, and also a big hello to all our new followers out there. Good to have you on board the carousel. And a big thank you to those pop kids who've supported the podcast and bought us a coffee. You too can do the same. It's very simple and there's no long-term commitment. It can be a one-off thing or you can buy as many coffees as you like, as often as you like. It's up to you. Here's how you do it. Just go to coffee.com slash giddypoppod. That's ko hyphen fi.com slash giddypoppod and chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. And uh, I think it's about time we welcomed our guest onto the carousel. He served as editor of Q, Select and Mixmag, was part of the esteemed and, you have to say, greatly missed magazine, The Word, and has written for many other publications along the way. These days, he's a prolific podcaster, including Romaniacs, The Bunker and pop culture podcast Big Mouth, which is a big fave around these parts. Waiting patiently for his ride on the carousel is Andrew Harrison. Welcome along. Hello, chaps. Thank you for welcoming me aboard. Do I have to be this tall to ride the carousel? Because I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) You've just sneaked on there. (laughs) Um, So we're going back 40 years uh, to the smash hits of the 29th of May to the 11th of June, 1980. Mm -hmm. Terry Hall from The Specials is leaning out of the cover, trademark, sullen stare and deadpan face, all present and correct. And this issue would have cost you the princely sum of 30p back in the day. As ever, if you want to read along with us, you can do just that, thanks to a couple of amazing websites, Brian McCloskey's Like Punk Never Happened and Smash Hits Remembered. You'll find links to the scans of this issue in the show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of The Hits. And you'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and over on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. Now, before we get stuck in, Andrew, am I right in thinking that you, you've been involved in Smash It's at, at some point during your illustrious career? I have had minor involvement at minor, minor moments. I'm very much a bit part player, nothing in, enormous. I was, toward, in the sad diminuendo of the hits of life in the 2000s, I was in an hilarious, uh, in, in, inappropriate moment possibly even an administrative error, supposedly in charge of smash hits. I was supposedly the editor's <laughs> boss for about five minutes. 
Um, I don't know whether this has been mentioned much on the podcast, but the the the, the end days of Smash Hits were not were not glorious, and uh, they were not well managed by um, by the suits by the people upstairs. Uh, and I I found myself off cue and uh, and on Smash Hits somehow. Um, it was very strange. It was the days when the kind of initiative of pop had been completely wrested away by the X Factor. Um, you know, uh, Simon Cowell's worldview ran everything and the poor old hits couldn't really catch up. Um, but when I was there, it was kind of improving because there was a very talented young bunch. And I, I often think that if they had been born 10 years earlier, they would have been a fantastic team on the hits in its days of glory. So they were making a good fist of it. They were doing as well as they possibly could. But unfortunately, it had been edited by, uh, do you remember Emma Jones who had a column in The Sun? Yes. She inexplicably was made editor of Smash Hits and just laid it waste, just turned it into a sad travesty. And it was hard, it, it, it proved impossible to get it back, um, even though they, they did their utmost. And a lot of very good people worked on it. And I sort of think they kind of got swizzed. Do you know what I mean? It, you know, it's a bit like, you know, your dream job. But things to just the circumstances have just moved away from it. So I was there. I was there at the end. But also, I did write one thing for Smash Hits in its days of glory, which was I reviewed uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood at the GMAX. Frankie Goes <laughs> to Hollywood were on at the GMAX with Berlin, hair of Take My Breath Away fame, Songstrel, and this was when I was a student. I was a student in Leeds, and um, I really wanted to. You know, I'd written about pop already before I became a student. I used to write live reviews of the Liverpool Echo, which I would phone in from a phone box, <laughs> stuffing two peas into the phone box uh, to dictate my reviews of the Jesus and Mary Chain and Echo and the Bunny Men and Level 42 of all people <laughs> to the copy takers of the Echo, who were fantastically disdainful of, of, of pop music. It's really, what is this? Um but, you know, I, I supplemented my income by writing a bit about pop music now and again. And while I was a student, I saw that I really, I just basically wanted to get to see Frankie Goes to Hollywood uh, at the GMX, who then were on their difficult second album, Liverpool. And I just thought I'll ring up the hits and see if I can get hold of anybody and try and persuade them to let me review this thing. So I rang up and I got straight straight through to Barry McElhenney, to my amazement and horror. I'm like, <laughs> hello, hello, I'm... I'm in Leeds. I'm a student in Leeds. I want to refact. So Barry goes, and I'm not going to try and do the voice because you've had him on the podcast and I wouldn't insult Barry by trying to do the voice. Just said, yeah, okay, do it. And, and I'm like, what? He <laughs> just, just do it, do it. it ring, up, ring up this person. Here's, the, here's Island Records press office. And I, I was, you know, basically I was the acid house Adrian Mole at this point and absolutely no clue about anything. So I just rang up and said, oh, I want to come and see Frank goes to Hollywood, the G-Max smash hits, what me to do I ended up going in review. Like an idiot, I didn't ask how many words do you want? And of course, a long smash hits review in those days about 300 words. I filed 1,500 <laughs> words of my attempt to do smash hits. And this, of course, is when they were remaking the English language with, you know, Swingo Rillian, Jumbo Rillian, Spew, Spew Gusting, Crimson Perv Breaks, <laughs> all your favourites, and everything in inverted commas. So I did 1,500 words of this, and to their credit, they hacked it down to 400, stuck it in, and seemed to be perfectly happy. I failed to follow up on getting my foot through the door at this point, um, but um, it was it was nice to actually have a byline in smash hits, um, you know, in, in you know, when it was actually properly smash hits. I also did write a little bit for the smash hits yearbook, thanks to Ian Jockey Craner, who's the editor of the issue of smash hits that we are about to 
um, yes. review, and I owe Ian Jockey Craner an awful lot because he basically got me uh, got me on the giddy carousel. So I wrote a couple of things for them as well. So before we get stuck into this edition of the hits, and uh, before we clamber aboard the carousel, um, let's set the scene. So you've already touched upon what you were doing in the mid to late 80s there. But what about in 1980? So the May and June of uh, 1980. Do you remember what you were up to back then, how old you were and where you were living? Um, I was 13. And actually, I can tell you exactly what I was doing the week this edition came out. <laughs> Because it's the 29th of May, 1980. I was at Pontins Prestatin because it was Whit Week. Yeah. And we went every Whit Week. Pontins Prestatin immortalised in Holiday on the Buses, the movie. So you could see it as was with the cast of On the Buses messing around the boating lake and, and in the very swimming pool in which I spent many a happy hour in the 1970s, early 1980s. And I vividly remember Rat Race by the specials which this edition is promoting, being played in The Disco. And The Disco in Pontins Prestatin was actually the luggage room where people would have their luggage dumped off the off the coach before they went to their chalets. And after the Saturday, when everybody claimed all their suitcases, it was turned into The Disco. What this meant was some black light bulbs, and that was it. So some black, black light tubes and a guy with decks at the other end. And me being 13 and a pop music fan and looking about nine, found it phenomenally intimidating, but also absolutely kind of entrancing. I desperately wanted to be in there dancing to the music and being part of it. And I remember in previous years, my mum would go in with me. Um, but um, I think I was, I think I'd graduated to going in on my own by the time I was 30, because I was a teenager, you see. And I, I vividly remember um, Rat Race by the Specials being played in the in the disco of Pontins Prestati. So, yeah, I mean, I was 13. I was living in um, just outside McGull on Merseyside, uh, halfway between McGull and Ormskirk, out in the fields, with two younger brothers, one of whom, Ian, is now the news editor of Mojo magazine, and the other brother, Stuart, is a, a cartoonist and an illustrator. And that was it. I mean, I, we used to work Saturdays in, the, in my dad's butcher's shop, which is the reason that, A, I had a little tiny bit of money, but B, is the reason I never saw Liverpool playing on Saturdays because I was in the backyard in a hundred, a couple of hundred yards away from Anfield, scrubbing blood <laughs> off old boards and uh, cleaning a dirty backyard. While over the back wall, I could hear Liverpool destroying everyone on their march to their umpteenth title. So that's what I was doing when I was 13. So with that hard-earned cash, uh, I'm presuming that you, you're going out and buying records. Yeah. What sort of stuff? Two-tone. Two-tone all the way, was it? Two-tone all the way. It was two-tone. Two-tone got me at an impressionable age. Two-tone was the first thing that was my thing. Because previously, you know, I'd you know I'd loved Slade and the Sweet, and still love Slade and the Sweet. I'd loved around about sort of nineteen seventy eight, nineteen seventy nine. It sort of clicked in my head that pop music was more than just a thing I had lying around. Um, it was it was going to be an important thing in my life. In fact, I remember going to secondary school in nineteen seventy eight, and thinking, I can't play football, I can't fight, I need a thing. Pop music's going to be my thing. I know about I can know about pop music. I know a lot about pop music, and it will become the currency of um, my school life, but also my life. <laughs> so um, that, that's how it happened. Um, but before Two Tone, um, it had been the Amazing Dot, who I loved because, and you know, at, at a distance now, forty years later, I can see because it's all music for dancing to. It's all music for you know. It's not. It's not. It's not heavily freighted with meaning, although obviously the specials in Tucson had a lot of meaning. They, they had a lot of things to say, but ultimately it was music for dancing to, it was music for going mad to. And 
that was what I loved about Two Tone. You could see the dance on top of the pops on a Thursday night, and in the school disco on a Friday lunchtime, you could be doing the dance. Also, you could very easily customise a school uniform to make yourself look like Walt Jabsko, the Two Tone Man. All you needed was a pair of white socks, put the fat end of your tie inside your shirt, make sure your shirt had a small collar. You're away. And I remember being asked uh, after I'd started doing this. One of us, one of our teachers, said. What, what are you doing? Why are you doing this, Andrew? Because it wasn't in contravention of school uniform. It's just a bit odd. Why are you doing this? And I said, because I'm a rude boy, miss. <laughs> and she said, oh, no, you're not, Andrew. You're very polite. <laughs> and, um, you know. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, all that lot and a, and a, and a, a surreptitious one-inch badge, and you were away. So, yeah, it was, it was two-tone. It was a special. It was fantastic. I remember seeing Madness on Top of the Pops at the end of 1979 doing The Prince, their, their debut. I'm thinking, this is rubbish, this is terrible, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It sounds like fairground music, they can't play their instruments. And a week later, they were my favourite band, and I never looked back. And they still are one of my favourite bands. Just and, it, and that made me think that the things that puzzle you and surprise you uh, and that you don't like are often going to turn out to be your favourite things. I can remember coming home from Holiday, we were on holiday uh, in first week in September 1979, uh, coming home, listening to the top 40 on a little tiny radio, because having been in France or whatever for a fortnight, you're out of touch with pop music, which is terrible. It's like going blind or deaf or something. You did not know what was going on. And listening to the top 40, it's like in at number 19 or whatever. It's the specials with gangsters. I'd never heard anything like it in my life. Powerful impression. And, you know, there we were, off, convinced forever. So bringing our attention to Smash It's itself, and was it something that was on your radar at the time? Was it something that you were reading? Actually, it wasn't that much. Um, I start. I picked it up now and again. Um, this this period, this 1980, this is kind of before Smash Hits becomes Smash Hits, isn't it? This is the er uh, period of Smash Hits. This is this is the uh, the original generation, the kind of um, before the language goes mad, before the sense of humour really embeds. And I remember enjoying it. I spent all my money on comics, to be honest with you. I, I, it was Mighty World of Marvel and Spider-Man Comics Weekly and so on. Um, so I would, I would read other people's smash hitses. And the, the, the importance and the currency of having the lyrics was um, enormously important. And I actually used to earn a little bit of spare cash transcribing lyrics for people who were too tight to buy smash hits for themselves. So for 10p, I would do you the lyrics of probably Midnight Dynamo by Matchbox or The Devil Went Down to Georgia or whatever happened to be out at the time. So uh, always, always on the hustle. Um, <laughs> but no, I did enjoy Smash Hits and um, found it fascinating. And now, 40 years later, the, with the magazine head on, the thing that surprised me, and particularly the cover, is how spare and sparse and unfussy and un, uh, unsalesman-like it is. There aren't any screaming, you know, grab, you know, you must read this cover lines. The cover lines are literally the names of the bands, the specials, Orchestra Maneuvers, Hot Chocolate, New Music, Dexy's Midnight Runners in Colour. You know, there's no, you must read this. There's none of those devices that were first very effective and then got really tiresome, like 22 days inside the heart, the beating heart of the U2 machine, or, you know, sex, banjos, bison, 
inside the mad world of insert pop star's name none of this had been invented yet and actually the journey from smash hits to that was it was all being made in public wasn't it because smash hits begets q begets mojo and you know select comes in in parallel and we're all in this kind of gigantic sort of it's like forced rhubarb you know we're all kind of being forced <laughs> under the lights to just do it hard you know better and louder and more grabby and more yellow and a free in the corner and and this edition of smash hits which is just terry looming at you it's it almost looks like an edition of the gentlewoman or an edition of fantastic man or something it's so austere terry looks incredible obviously he's wearing a um a blood red suit with a blood red shirt with blood red eye uh, eyeshadow and uh, apparently blood red dyed hair and he looks like he'd rather be anywhere else and it's incredible just like totally compelling well, I think it's interesting to look at the other covers from this time as well. And it, it very much is the thing of just a headshot. It's one person and quite often very close in. And, and and it carries on like that for a good couple of years using that kind of style. It does, yeah. Well, I think the genius that Nick Logan uh, hit upon was that in this moment, pop music had been so taken away from the fans because the weeklies had become so you know, almost disdainful of what pop was. This is my, you know, I didn't start reading the NME until 1981. I bought my first copy of the NME because I wanted to find out why the specials had split up. There was no other way of finding out. I had to wait a week to find out why the specials had split up. But now, with a bit of a remove, I can see that Smash Hits was removing the barrier between you and the bands that you loved. And you see it in all the stories that we're going to talk about in a minute. It's like, it's not about some, you know, weekly inky writer giving you their immensely complicated theoretical take on these people it's not about you know trying to impose an idea on them it's like how did you start your band why did you start your band where did you live what did your mum and dad do and weirdly those are all the things that i got into myself this, this is why i loved q when it came out because it actually told you the stories of the bands i mean I, I remember you know being increasingly dissatisfied with the enemy because you know sitting there Asking, you know, asking Mark unpronounceable surname out of big country, what does he think about socialism and Thatcher? And asking, you know, Winston Bazumis from Bad Manners about Kierkegaard. <laughs> it, it, it's not necessarily what you as a pop fan want. What you want is the tale of how they came to be and why they do what they do. And obviously, it can oscillate a bit too far in the other direction. And, you know, 40 years of pop shows, we've seen that we've seen the metronome swing back and forth. But I've always thought, and I can remember thinking dimly, you know, at the time, when I borrow people's issues of smash hits, yeah, they actually tell you who they who they are. You learn a lot from it. Now that's a good point about the writers because really the style that these are written in, it doesn't. It's not at all important who's writing the piece. You don't get any sense of their personality coming across, really, do you? It's because the focus is on the bands. And at this stage, you don't. And I'm I'm looking at the contents page now. I'm I'm looking at the, uh, the the masthead now. Editor Ian Jockey Craner, to whom I owe I owe a lot. Features editor David Hetworth, to whom I owe, I owe a lot. I mean, in the middle of being uh, when I was a student, I got so depressed and bored and thought this was awful. I actually applied for a job at EMAP and got an interview with David Hetworth. Came down to London, got an interview with David Hetworth, and he and I'm sitting there full of my my love of pop music. And he goes, "All right, what ideas have you got for Smash Hits?" And I'm just blank because <laughs> I didn't think you were supposed to have ideas. <laughs> this is, must have been 1986 or 87, something like that. I just thought he'd go, well, you seem like a likely young lad. Here's two first-class tickets to Los Angeles. Go and hang around with your favourite bands for a while, see what you get. No, give us some ideas. I just sat there like a lemon. And he said, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to take anybody who hasn't finished their university course. So go away, finish your university course, and then see what happens. So I did. So it was very good. So we owe him a lot. Um, look at the rest of the, you know, the contributors. 
Fred Della. Fred Della. Steve Taylor. Advertising manager Rod Sop, who I worked with at Wagadon, Publishers of the Face. Rod's Rod the Mod Sop, a fantastic character. Best mate of Nick Logan. Managing editor, Nick Logan. Who obviously... We need need to say no more about what he's done. But publisher Peter Strong, who also worked on he was the he was the MD of The Word when I was there. And Peter Strong's a fantastic chap. He's like he looks like if you can imagine Roger Delgado's master had lived a lot longer and become a much more jolly fellow. <laughs> a much more jolly and friendly and approachable fellow. Peter Strong was like a you know, he was a character from a um you know from a uh, an Ealing comedy, actually, a truly dependable British gentleman. So they're all here. It's weird. It's like seeing people that, um, you know, that you would have, there's a lot of dramatic irony on the go here, people I will encounter in the future. Um, but yeah, the writing is not, um, you know, there, it has yet to evolve the smash hits Argo. Mm. And we've yet to meet stars like Tom Hibbert, much less the later people like William Shaw and Chris Heath, who actually do develop their own style and actually their own style then becomes Smash It's House style. So it's a it's it's more utilitarian, it's more sparse, and it's in a lot of ways more post punk. It's uh, it is it is writing in the style of of utilitarianism and that kind of thing. So let's have a look at what's actually in this issue of Smash It, shall we? And the first, what's the first thing we encounter? Lyrics. We encounter the lyrics to Rescue by the Bonnie Men and No Self Control by Peter Gabriel, because obviously that's the most, and, and We Are Glass by Gary Newman, because they're the most important things in the magazine. Um, Echo and the Bonnie Men, two of them went to our school, they went to Days High School in McGull. So that would be Will and Les, and they left before. Um, I started, so I didn't. I never actually met them, but I do remember when they had their first hit, and I assumed that we'd go into school, and the headmaster would, the morning assembly, the headmaster would say, "Great news, everyone! Two former pupils of uh, of this school are bona fide top forty pop stars. They are in the pop charts. It is a great day. We should all celebrate." And he didn't say anything. He didn't say a single thing. And I thought, this is an outrage. This is like and that, you know, the the unfair cruelty of the world. My illusions were shattered, but you, you would have expected that, wouldn't you? But of course, I now know that he had barely any conception of what pop music was, let alone Echo and the Bunnymen. <laughs> and would have probably considered Les and Will to be a pair of delinquents, although I did interview them many years later, and they did ask after one or two shared school teachers. So, you know, there we go. <laughs> so you've already mentioned a few of the songs that are in uh, in this issue of uh, Hits. So we've also got um, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark with Messages, the Bucket of Water song by the Four Bucketeers, yeah. the aforementioned specials, uh, Mystic Merlin, Just Can't Give You Up, Crown Heights Affair, You Gave Me Love, Jermaine Jackson, Let's Get Serious, Midnight Dynamos by Matchbox, Let's Go Round Again by The Average White Band, A Blast from the Past with uh, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us by Sparks, Pulling Muscles from a Shell by Squeeze, In the Kitchen at Parties by Jonah Louis, and I'm Alive by Electric Light Orchestra. And there are also features on, obviously, the specials, but with uh, Terry Hall being the cover star, uh, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, and Hot Chocolate as well. And uh, even though we've got a centre spread in colour of new music, and even though the cover <laughs> on, on the front promises Dex's Midnight Runners... They're not in there. They're not in there. So I think it's the human league. So I think a bit of a mix-up there. And there may have been a last-minute decision yeah. to put the human league in because the twin pillars of Smash Hits in this era are song words and posters, aren't they? Yeah. And there's a reason why the features are right at the bottom of the list of contents. It's like, it just says, specials, feature. You know, the, the, the days when you would spend an inordinate amount of time crafting 
you know your incredible uh, you know headline or, or or contents line they have not arrived yet so the and, and that was actually always you know my favorite part of smash it and then my favorite part of doing the job the headlines and the cover lines and the and the puns and the wordplay and all the rest of it i saw a fantastic old issue of smash it the other day and it was zig zig sputnik with a cover and the cover line was are they the future of rock and roll or a load of codswell <laughs> zig zig sputnik <laughs> and i thought that's what I love about this business. <laughs> of well, let's um, let's get stuck into our first feature then, shall we? Yes. Gavin, do you want to uh, take the helm for this one? Indeed. OMG, it's OMD. So uh, with <laughs> a large and lovely picture of uh, the two lads in what appears to be an Eastern European train station with uh, Winston the tape machine in the foreground and the lyrics to Messages, mm-hmm. their current hit single, uh, we get a page feature on... OMD, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, The Acceptable Face of Synthesizers, written by Steve Taylor, who seems to be the kind of the go-to man for Northwest bands. And uh, they've already had their first album out at this point, and they're a few months away from their second album, and Messages is uh, just starting to ride high in the singles chart. And um, it paints a bit of a picture of them in concert. So uh, the piece starts out, it's a Friday night at a typical college gig somewhere near London's Elephant and Castle. The customary sweaty room is full of studious-looking types downing gassy beer and going through the ritual known as waiting for the band. Eventually, four rather neat young men take the stage. Two station themselves behind nifty-looking metal frames which support various keyboards and Habitat-style reading lamps. The third guy stands in the middle at the front, bass and microphone at the ready. The last lad sits down behind a drum kit which appears to have been attacked by thieves on the way to the gig. Hardly any drums left. These are orchestral manoeuvres in the dark and they proceed to pump out an extremely tasty set of songs. Bouncy, dance-worthy bass and electronic percussion, hence the mini kit, with strong vocal melodies and a lacing of economically used synthesizers. No guitar, but no doomy Teutonic dirges either. Just healthy 80s pop with an enjoyable input of technology. So it kind of sets a scene there and then uh, it sounds like Steve had already been to... uh, I was to Liverpool and interviewed them earlier on and... And as we were saying before, really, um, in this issue, we get a lot of stuff about the history of bands, and it goes through uh, the last kind of three years of orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, then starting out involved in a band called The Id, and then kind of how they got together, and um, their style of music. Andrew, growing up in that part of the world, I know they weren't exactly neighbours, but they were fairly close to where you grew up. Do you remember much about OMD in those days? Were they on your radar much? No, I was a little bit young for them. They came to me through the medium, obviously Top of the Pops, and also through other people's haircuts and other people's <laughs> clothes, you know, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of thin tie action going on here. I think that picture that you described, I, I have a suspicion it might be Liverpool's Exchange Station, which was, you know, I think had just been closed down or was about to be closed down. And they were from the Wirral. They were from Mel's and the Wirral over the water, which is like an alien world where you would seldom go. Um, and also, I hadn't really understood. I was dimly aware of. I'd seen Kraftwerk on Tomorrow's World, and I think I think I'd seen them on Tomorrow's World. I think that had happened. Um, and maybe maybe I'm getting it out of order, but I hadn't properly got my head around the idea of inhuman music, which is of course now my favourite thing. Um, but they were they they were bang into it. And but of course, your main introduction to these artists would be through either Smash Hits or Top of the Pops, where you would get a feel for you would get the look and the idea of how they wanted to present themselves at the exact same time as the music. The idea of you know I hadn't discovered John Peel yet, 
I, I was barely aware that there was music that was made that didn't make it into the pop charts. And when I discovered that, I was shocked and astounded. And my first thought was, well, what's the point then? <laughs> if you put a record out and it's not in the charts, why bother? And also being, you know, uh, you know, from my background, well, how'd you make your money then if you don't get in the pop chart? But um, no, I mean, I remember really liking OMD when I when I heard what I heard of them because they seemed so odd. and um, But also, so it was so vivid. I was, you know, very fond of red frame white light um and they the record sleeves you know were another key way that you apprehended this stuff you'd be in record shops looking at music you didn't understand i think i was at this point too frightened to go in probe in Liverpool. Mm. i would go to philip's son and nephew the bookshop next door instead and buy me doctor who paperbacks but probe was just too frightening to go into and it took me years to, to actually go in there um but yeah, I mean, I just remember thinking, this is this is music I've never heard before at the age of thirteen when I've heard barely anything anyway, uh, and being kind of weirdly mesmerised by them. I couldn't say I was ever a fan. I don't think actually, you know, I was at that stage where it, it, you know, if you buy one record, you feel you've got to buy them all. Mm. So I wasn't, I hadn't started collecting OMD. I didn't ever do that. Um, but when reading this feature is quite interesting because people pop up. You know, I mentioned a lot of dramatic irony. People pop up who, in later life, you will learn who they actually are. So Roger Eagle and Pete Fulwell, who ran Eric's, are mentioned here just by in first name terms. Um, there's some great, highly amusing bits in here. Not least the typo in the intro. Just healthy '80s pop with an enjoyable input. Input with an IM of technology. Dave Hepworth would go mad at that. He'd absolutely tear his hair out at that. Liverpool is described as the freezing but friendly port of Liverpool. And um, one of the closing lines is, for a band named after a song consisting of war noises recorded from a TV mixed with the sound of several radios interfering with each other, OMD have come a long way. Yeah. Which is a fair appraisal, I think. They really have. I think, you know, we've talked before a bit about some of the some of the language in this and and you're right it's very hard when i was reading that introduction it's very hard not to read it in a chumley warner voice because it does feel very kind of old-fashioned and sort of uh quite proper you know like it's a bounceable bass and extremely tasty pop songs and you know it's it's that kind of language being used but i I think that's actually that was actually part of the reason that it, it you know what set it on its road to success was that it was intelligible and when I started reading the NME the following year, when the special split up, on the one hand, it was great because it literally, in a Reader's Digest manner, expanded my word power. But it was also utterly baffling because the, the level, you know, you were, the, the knowledge of um, an arts postgraduate was assumed on behalf of a then 14-year-old former rude boy. And you got a fast and accelerated education, but it didn't, you, you know, I could come out of those things not actually knowing how... For instance, the Gang of Four got together. Um, mm. It was just assumed that you would know. Whereas Smash Hits, would, Smash Hits was Wikipedia before it was Wikipedia. It, they get get just the facts, man. They filled you in, good and proper. But again, I mean, more dramatic irony in this one. Um, they're asked at one towards the end. Uh, OMD are asked, can they think of why they are having success when similar bands like the Human League are struggling? Not for long readers. <laughs> Not for long. Hold your horses. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Narrator, but it wouldn't be that way for long. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. But, you know, I'm sort of also now at the age where um, literally anything old fascinates me. So the things in the corner of the of the photograph of OMD, Andy's wearing an absolutely shocking kind of mid-length PVC coat. Um, Paul's looking a bit more um, upmarket, you know, 
crossover of Scally and Man at C and A, but uh, <laughs> it's a tra- it's a really tragic coach choice for uh, for Andy, I'm afraid. But they've both got very good not looking at the camera skills, very strong looking glum not looking at the camera skills are in, in, in display here. I'm, I'm not too sure about Andy's trousers either, looking almost almost flairish. They're possibly a little too long for him, and he's not had them turned up, so they're kind of bunching up at the bottom. But it's looking. I think I think we might be seeing the end of the. Um, Kate Bush, Carl Douglas, Kung Fu years. I think this just made that they look slightly dojo-ish. I think that might be the, the end of it. And is he is he wearing a cravat? History does not reveal whether he's wearing a cravat or not. Well, yeah, I mean that's a, it is almost the prototypical Smash Hits feature. It explains what's going on, introduces you to the people, and you come away having learned quite a lot. Um, we turn the page. Here's the lyrics for the bucket of water song. John Gorman, strong Liverpool connection. John Gorman, the mass poet of Tiz was, and Bob Carroll, geez. <laughs> For people who, who don't remember the Bucket of Water song, the four Bucketeers were... Um... Simon, they all remember it. If they listen to this <laughs> podcast, they all remember it. Come on. I didn't remember it, and I heard it a couple of months ago for something else that I was working on. I don't remember this. I wasn't a Tiz was kid. I was a, I was a swap shop kid, so there, there wasn't, uh, much, okay. wasn't much of this going on in my life. I'm like, Tiz was made a record? So, yeah, it's Chris Tarrant, Sally Jane, Bob Carroll, geez, and um, John Gorman with a... Uh, Happy sing-along song, Bucket of Water song. (laughs) Words and music by John Gorman, reproduced by permission of PVA Music. By the way, Smash Hits lyrics, facts I discovered subsequently, um, it was 400 quid a go to reproduce the lyrics. So reproducing lyrics is quite expensive, I discovered. Presumably this would have gone up as time had gone by, but at one point it was 400 quid to reproduce the lyrics. They reproduced the lyrics to Return of Lost Palmer 7 by Madness. The lyrics are, waiter... 400 quid I suggest to you that the madness are therefore the highly paid most highly paid authors in human history 400 pound a word <laughs> who gets that Don DeLillo doesn't get that uh, I'm just I'm looking at who the actual writers are. I think it was Woody from Madness uh, written by Mike Bars and Mark Bedford and Woody so there you go 400 quid split firstly 50-50 half of it goes to the whole band the remaining uh, 50% is split between the authors as I've just learned from Madness's excellent book. Well, then we move on to bits, which is yet, which again has not turned into the madness of, of later years. It's actually very, very factual. Um, we learned that the Clash are rearranging some concerts because it's caused inconvenience to the listeners. Thank you, the Clash. <laughs> uh, we learned that the police are releasing some old material and a quick survey of opinion around the Smash Hits office suggests that most people reckon this is just a barefaced marketing manoeuvre unworthy of a band who have in the past given nothing less than value for money. <laughs> Quite partridgean, I'm sure you agree. It is accidental partridge. Well, it was six singles in, in one pack that were all on blue vinyl and you did get one one record that hadn't been a single before because I remember yeah. getting one of them as an ex-jukebox single <laughs> back in 1980. Ah, I remember when that came out. I remember it hanging up at the, at the record shop in um, in the St. John's Centre in Liverpool whose name escapes me around the corner from Extreme where, where the punks would buy their clothes. And, um, yeah, it was hanging up there. It looked like this kind of ludicrously kind of, uh, you know, extravagant thing, six six singles. Who could possibly afford such a thing? <laughs> now, here's something revealing. There's a picture of David Essex. Um, everybody's got something to hide department. David Essex pictured in 1969 at the height of his third comeback. Seems such an odd thing to put there for um, the primarily mid-teen audience. But David Essex, I suppose, was quite a big deal at the time. You know, he's still hanging on to his 70s audience. But the thing to, that what gets me is, to my eye, he looks fantastic. He looks like, you know, Bob Stanley. 
from Saint Etienne or Pete Wiggs, incredible. <laughs> roll neck, you know, loads of hair, you know, roll neck jumper. And this would have been considered utterly hilarious at the time, just stuck in the magazine because he looks, yeah. he looks a bit different from what we look like now. <laughs> um, and of course, if you turned up looking like David Essex does in this picture now, everybody think you look great. And if you turned up in Andy McCluskey's PVC mat and kung fu pants, <laughs> people would laugh you out of town. I mean, other amazing things in in bits. Um, half page on new Liverpool label Zoo Records with the bands The Tears of Explosions and Echo in the Wonder. Steve Taylor clearly getting his money's worth out of his trip to Liverpool here because later in the mag we meet Wah Heat as well. Yeah, there is a, a strong Liverpool thread running all throughout this. Yeah. But the thing that really amazed I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a minor squabble between Ultravox and former singer John Fox. Will they ever be heard of ever again? The Musicians Union is going to go on strike. It is not known what this will mean for Top of the Pops. I'll tell you what it means for Top of the Pops. Go on then. Because um, I, I, I had a look. Um, it took Top of the Pops off air from when this issue of Smash It's came out, so at the end of um, May in 1980, until the 7th of August. It was off air for all that time. Well, you see, this is why we needed Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> this is why we needed Mrs. Thatcher's firm hand. Short, sharp, shot, you see, get Tom Pops back on, on telly. Yeah, get rid of those unions. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Bring bring us back our pop music. But my, my favourite story, this is how weird and unclassifiable Smash Hits was at the time. Bottom of the second page of Bits, billed as the cheapest novel of 1980, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle by Michael Moorcock comes in the shape of a giant popular newspaper available for 75p from Virgin Books. <laughs> I had for, completely forgotten about this. As they were actually ringing and kicking the arse out of the last bits of the, of the Sex Pistols, I'd totally forgotten Michael Moorcock had written a, had written a Great Rock and Roll Swindle thing. Um... Also, they are um, putting out a new single, Stepping Stone, from the soundtrack, with a track called Pistols Propaganda, consisting of statues of old songs linked by the voice of veteran BBC announcer John Snag. So we really are at the arse end of punk here, aren't we? As we'll see later when we come to the close adverts. Yeah. Um, we've got The Buggles Have Joined Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which, for my money, improved Yes enormously and gave us owner of a lonely heart. But the, here we are, dramatic irony, a half-page item on the ruts, which begins, a lot of things have gone wrong for the ruts in recent months. Yes, and they're going to continue going wrong for the poor old ruts. It really is quite sort of, you know. Yeah, because it was only a couple of months after that that Malcolm Owen died. Yes. And it says here that they hadn't been able to do any gigs because he'd had throat problems, but they don't mention the heroin, so, you know. Yeah, well, heroin's bad for your throat. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, and that that thing of kind of um, ha- you know we talk about there's no there's no barrier between you and the bands, but actually there was a barrier between you and the bands, and, and Smash Hits was quite good and would get better at it as time went by. Talking about um, bands having to cancel tours because of a summer cold <laughs> and uh, things like that, you know, somebody's obviously strung out in the priory or whatever. Protecting the kids, yeah. But yeah, you know, poignant. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting in this piece they talk about, which we'll come on to in a minute in the specials thing as well is that there's a mention of violence at gigs yeah uh, and they're talking about the nastiness of some of the shows and it says the ruts simply want to be honest because they've had a lot of criticism for kind of people think that they've tried to kind of encourage violence they've just had that sing uh the song stare at the rude boys yeah uh people like andrew or polite boys <laughs> um and uh, as bassist seg says the last thing we want to do is glorify violence perhaps a group shouldn't be not too hard for placing some trust in their audience's intelligence but it's quite telling that that features a couple of times in interviews with bands that, you know, you, you wouldn't even occur to you now to, um, you know, if you're in an interview with a band, there wouldn't be anything about violence at gigs, really. But back then it was uh, very much part of the um, 
the culture, wasn't it? You know. Well, getting beaten up is part of growing up, as the uh, late great Piranhas once sang. Um, no, it, gigs were terrifying, and as all your listeners will know, um, you know, the first few I went to were at the Royal Court in Liverpool, and you really were, you know, you had to really watch your back. And the fact that you were like fourteen or fifteen, or whatever, it didn't make any difference whatsoever. You could still get your head kicked in. The first gig I went to at the Royal Court was the Beat who were fantastic, but it was still a little bit hairy. And then the specials, where there was a fist fight, not just in the audience, but on stage as well. And they split up a couple of weeks later, so just right after, you know, must have been right after Ghost Town. But it was um, it was unnerving. And it was, uh, you know, that, that sort of strange crossover of football hooliganism and violence at gigs. Because going to gigs was a weird thing in those days. Only weirdos did it. It wasn't part of the general entertainment menu as it is now and, and has been since since oasis really since, you know oasis put gig going kind of on the on the national palette uh but before that it was what you did if you if you you know you didn't go to the match or you were you know i mean obviously a lot of people went to the match as well as going to gigs but it was definitely for the kind of left field people and you know for the people who like to fight because that was the hangover of punk Over the page, and we find our cover stars, the specials, loitering around Lady Godiva's statue in Coventry City Centre. The headline, Today Coventry, Tomorrow Coventry. Interviewed by David Hetworth. Um, And Terry Hall treats David Hetworth to a short course in two tonics and explains how to keep out of the rat race. Now, this this is around rat race, which to this day, although it sounds fantastic, is still the special single that gets on my nerves the most. (laughs) Because even then, I could see, as a kid, I could see... Uh, you know, I've got one art O level. It did nothing for me. Well, of course, it's going to do nothing for you. It's one art O level. You know, this this is what a con- very conventional Adrian Mole I was. So I, I was genuinely offended that the specials should do a song about don't, don't do your schoolwork, don't work hard, it's pointless. I'm like, no, do your schoolwork. The specials are supposed to be clever. You know, they've got songs that are about things. But um, the feature featuring such great lines from from Dave as the racy passer of Neville Staples. Um, <laughs> it's it is the the facts but delivered with a you know with with a degree of uh, of panache and extremely readable as as Dave's stuff always has been. You know, he gets straight to the point and you know, I was particularly fascinated when he kind of Terry starts talking about uh we've been listening to a lot of things like John Barry albums. There's so many good theme tunes around that are just wasted. One of my favourite songs is the Third Man theme. It's just another idea. We're not going to go instrumental or anything, but Jerry's written a song called International Jet Set, which stems from our touring America and all the crap that we went through. He's just given that odd feel to it. It's spooky. First mention of International Jet Set, which I, to this day I can't sit on a plane that's taken off without hearing in the back of my head. Do, 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 um, And he's talking about what the specials are going to do and how they're going to transform from, you know, the kind of Scarpunk, rude boy, oikery into the the crazed, over-coloured, tartrazine, hi-fi music world of more specials, which, again, first time I heard it, this is terrible. Second time I heard it, favourite album of all time. (laughs) And that's what, you know, I was starting to learn that this is what bands should do. They ought to stretch your brain. And the idea that the specials could sell you on music that you would otherwise run away from like mad was kind of intriguing and strange. I mean, we do get the full rundown, the Coventry Automatics, you know, who they've toured with, um, who's in the band, their 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 length lengthy string of hits from the uh, from the two tone stable and how any gigantic record label would be proud of that. Those things are kind of 
that's that's Q. It's the ghost of Q. Mm. It's the the future foreboding of or, or, you know foreshadowing rather. And it actually looks a lot like a Q feature. You know, big black and white picture, the big black and white headline, quite stark. Um, you know, the mag- the two magazines were more similar than you think. And um, you know, I actually think I do remember reading this because I I remember from whomever I borrowed it from. I remember thinking, what what you're not going to do Scar anymore? What's going on? I don't understand this. Well, it's the first, also first mention of uh, Socket Tomb JB because of John Bradbury's love of Northern Salt, the late and wonderful John Bradbury. So, yeah, it kind of, um, I'm sure you get an awful lot of, uh, you know, Proust talk on this podcast as people go, oh, my God, the years have fallen away. But the years kind of did fall away. And, you know, they're talking about, again, it's violence at gigs, um, talking about the, the thing that's followed them around and the, that they have to deal with. You know, the specialist de- determination to discourage violence, violence in any form hasn't wavered at all. The specialist is one of the few bands who actually write songs that deal with this subject specifically and not just as another arty generalisation. They see no glamour in it. Interesting. Nobody's asking Terry about uh, Kierkegaard and uh, Baudrillard and so on, as you might get elsewhere. I think this issue and, and in the interviews um, throughout the magazine, there's a lot of facing forward and looking towards the future, isn't there? Because I guess they're just a few months into a new decade. And that whole kind of um, looking back at pop wasn't really a thing then, was it? You know, you were always moving forward. And so with OMD, they were talking about bringing kind of the human emotion into um, synths and electronic music. And with yes. the specials, they're clearly already at a bit of a crossroads and thinking they've kind of had enough... Of scar- well, not had enough of Scar, but they 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 want to move on and they want to develop. Yeah. But also, it's it's interesting the kind of you know the, the past was just the past, and it's, it's elsewhere in this issue we see very scant attention paid to Paul McCartney. Yeah, who is you know he's just made another album, this clapped out old fella, and it's you know not very interesting. Um, Paul McCartney full page ad in Smash Hits for his new album McCartney Two includes the single coming up. It's like the idea that Paul McCartney will be treated as just this kind of you know a sideshow of the past. Because, yes, it was the 1980s. I vividly remember, um, I think this was in the NME, it was when Gary Newman had slightly, this was in the early days of reading the NME, so it must have been 1981 or 82, because that's when I started reading it. Um, Gary Newman had fallen, very much fallen off the top of the tree. And so I can't remember who wrote it, said, who needs needs robots in the pork pie-hatted 1980s? You know, the future was going to be pork pie-hats. We're all going to look like Alexi Sale and robots were just... (laughs) Computers are a fad, and uh, how wrong can you be? You know, and you're saying people face the future an awful lot, and the reason that Smash Hits was so interested in the future was there was nowhere else to find out what was going to happen next. Nowhere hmm. you were not going to find out from daytime radio one. If you were brave enough to venture into evening radio one, you'd be too busy being baffled and freaked out as a kid to understand, you know, the news about the future. Um, but I met you know years later when I met Chris Heath when I was kind of fairly wet behind my ears starting out. And he, I remember him saying to me, if you get stuck when you're talking to any musicians, just ask them what they're going to do next. That's what people want to know. People want to know what you're going to do next. And it's, and it's astonishing how little that happens because things are written either for, not entirely for fans, quite rightly. People do not write for fans because the fan audience for any band, even the biggest band, is is, is you know by nature exclusionary not everybody will be a fan of of this thing here but just the fascination of somebody announcing a thing that they might do next um that's got value to everyone and you never know they may announce something genuinely astonishing 
so I yeah I found that interesting that the, the the forward future facing thing, and because nobody else is going to tell you this, only the faithful hits would tell you this. And I guess things were moving at such a pace then as well that if you weren't looking forward, you know you'd get swept away, wouldn't you? You know you had to keep yeah moving in the in that direction very quickly. Well, that kind of brings us to page eighteen and the first of the clothing and merchandise ads, oh. where. <laughs> Um, one of them is a half-page ad for punk gear from Individual Trading of Bedford, and this is really out of date. This is like that you can see that the, the dial has moved, things have changed, and a sullen drawing of a bunch of bony punks in their <laughs> in their kind of bondage kecks and their zip-covered kind of Rosillo's gear and their mohair jackets and their wraparound space laser specs. Even then, I knew this is kind of things have changed a bit here. They think this is not. These were the kids two years older than me at school who were still hanging on to a thing that I knew had gone. And even in the mix here, there's a Madness T-shirt, you know, just like poking its little little head up to about the future. The Susie Sue stuff is here. She is, she's on the road to becoming what she's going to be, which is, uh, you know, something beyond punk, her own goth person. Adam and the Ants. Adam and the Ants are in there. Yeah, and they're going to become something quite... This is Adam and the Ants in their, very much in their Marquis de Sade uh, you know, S and M thing. Wears white socks. Dirt wears yeah. white socks. Maybe the readers didn't quite understand that. Mm, interesting. And you could always tell the kind of the t-shirt adverts were. They, they were like the leaderboard, and the t-shirt adverts from Star Prints of Leicester are the Jam, the Police, Blondie, Sid Vicious, Mods, Susan the Banshees, Sex Pistols, Clash, UK Subs, Police Pretenders, and Blondie again. So kind of, that's your real elite, and few of them. There's a little bit of punk there, but actually as a new era is happening, you know, the Jam and Blondie, uh, you know, Blondie had kind of been a punk thing, hadn't they? But they were, when they were the biggest band in the world, they'd left punk long, long, long behind. And the, mm. we, we forget how huge the police were. When the police were absolutely massive, weren't they? When you think about them now, and it's bloody Sting and his blue turtles, but they were vast. They were an enormous, enormous thing. And something we haven't mentioned at all, even though we're discussing Smash Hits, is the girls fancied them. And that was the engine room of Smash Hits. You know, the boys want to be them, the girls want to snog them. Some of the boys want to snog them as well. That would be in the future. Um, you know, that kind of, um, you know, in a world before pop saturated everything, when this was your one keyhole window, and... Obviously, girls drove pop music. Girls, you know, were buying the records and buying the posters and so on. And the very, very male weeklies just could not get a handle on that. And Smash Hits understood it and would understand it more and more as time went by and they understood the values of a beautiful colour photograph and video comes along and accentuates that and bands become more styled and heartthrobs emerge and that kind of thing. So that, you know, I, think, I always find the, the adverts as fascinating as the, as the content. Well, just under the T-shirts, um, straight ties. I mean, Andrew, I think you could have done that without modifying your school tie. You could have sent off for, for a, a one-pound straight tie. Uh, that, was with, a, that was a day's wage for me, a pound. Um, with, with whatever you wanted printing on it, you know, Anarchy and 80, Beatles, Beat, Boomtown Rats, Saxon, Bowie. 80 options here from uh, <laughs> Bent's Leather. Bony M. Well, a, thi- a thin tie. It is appropriate for Gary Newman and SLF and the Cockney Rejects. A thin tie is appropriate for Iggy Pop and Madness. It's not appropriate for a Boney M fan. Or Hissing Sid as well gets in there. God, Hissing Sid. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, Yeah, so anyway, a pound post-free. There you go. A lot of money in those days, though.
We move on now to a feature on hot chocolate and an interview with your main man, Errol Brown. With, I have to say, the pretty good headline, Never Mind the Horlicks, Here's Hot Chocolate, <laughs> rendered in the style of Never Mind the Bollocks. But then slightly let down by the stand first, which is Robin Katz joins the Ovaltinis. Hadn't the Ovaltinis finished in about 1958? Oh, yeah. Was the Ovaltini still going in 1980? <laughs> I only know it because my nan used to sing We Are the Ovaltinis, Little Girls and Boys. Or, no, my mum used to sing it as well. Um, I thought this is actually quite a heartfelt and interesting and em- empathic interview um, mm. with um, Errol Brown. Yeah, it's, it's a really good piece. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's all about you know Errol's troubles and the fact that they maybe aren't the commercial force that they um, that they were, but it's very frank. I think last year was one of the real low points in music for me. I was honestly relieved when our attempt at disco music failed. It just wasn't us. We were pressured into it. I mean, I love disco, but it got to the point last year when it was the only sound around. If your record didn't have one disco beat, nobody would play your records. I can't imagine any musician now feeling themselves um, kind of at liberty to say, we had a terrible time last year, our music was shit, we didn't want to be making it. It seems like an odd thing. You know, you might occasionally see it, but it would really stand out. There's an absolute lack of media training here. You know, nobody has been told to keep their mouth shut. Mindless Boogie and going through the motions were not my proudest moment. He said, I like Mindless Boogie personally. I think it's a really good tune, but that's surprising. I think they also, again, talking about being an integrated band. Having an integrated band wasn't particularly fashionable or common in 1969, recalls Errol. Attitudes were different then. We were the kids of the first generation of black immigrants to Britain. In many ways, we were trying to be the British first. There weren't a lot of those black kids about. We fitted in with the white kids without thinking about it. Nobody ever says that about hot chocolate. They talk about the specials, you know, and the selector quite rightly. But, you know, hot chocolate. You know why it is, don't you? Because he was a fan of Margaret Thatcher. Oh, was he? I don't remember that. He was a big Tory, yeah. Uh, so, consequently, yeah, he was. He was appeared on stage with, with Thatcher um, at one point um, and then was just forever in the enemy, just a, a public enemy. Um, but, no, it's a, it's a good piece, actually. It's, it's, uh, but I've got to say, Robin Katz really buries the lead because the final paragraph is about how Tot Chocolate songwriters had an, an experience with UFOs. Um, <laughs> this was news to me as well. It was amazing. It was news to me. They were on their way to blah, blah, blah. Uh, songwriters Steve Glenn, Mike Burns and Dave Most. Steve and Mike spotted a flying saucer in January. Errol says they were on their way to a meeting with Dave when they spotted a flying saucer over the Finchley Road in North London. They followed the light for 90 minutes from Hampstead Heath to St John's Wood. Also witnesses to the event apparently were members of a group called The Toys who were following in a band behind. Uh, this would have been I would have led on that personally I would have led on the yeah the the life on other planets I think the whole thing is quite credible Errol says anticipating the cynics the universe is so vast it just seems natural that there are other beings out there and then it finishes whatever you think of flying saucers it does seem pretty certain that hot chocolate will be around for a few more years yet a fantastic non sequitur there whatever you think of flying saucers we can all agree that hot chocolate will be around for a few years and you know to an extent um, you know I I think I don't think anybody gives hot chocolate enough uh, enough credit no they're they're, they're a fantastic band really consistently putting out good songs uh, throughout the 70s but I'd never never ever realised that this song was about UFOs and alien encounters and it was actually number two it was number two in the charts when um, in the top 40 when this edition of um, Smash It's came out and the the video which I saw for the first time uh, you find it on the uh, on the video playlist Pop Kids um, plays on that alien encounter because I'm like why why, why have they got a a UFO and a hot chocolate video what's this all about and then Errol's in in like a bacon foil soup ironically later on the letters page of this issue somebody is asking 
do you think people really listen to the lyrics and pay any attention to them or do they just listen to the cheer <laughs> it's, like, it's about the aliens that are coming to earth and nobody noticed until the year 2020 the distant future but i was only six at the time you know <laughs> there you go there you're a lad yeah um what's interesting on the next page an advert for a new magazine the face Issue two, out now. The Jam, Joe Jackson, Graham Parker, The Who, Colour, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, Susie Paul Weller, The Photo Magazine That's Kind to Your Hands. <laughs> the ink doesn't come off. And this was what Nick Logan was doing in his spare time, putting the face together on the art desk in the Smash Hits offices on Carnaby Street, where I subsequently spent a few years doing select uh, in a strange um, kind of flat share with Kerrang! magazine. What fun we had as we shared... Uh, we shared our different musical tastes. Oh, so, right, hang on. Is this what we... Right, so we turn the page, and here's... If you stuck around this long to find out about the competition winner excitement, Oof. there's an odd little cartoon at the top, which is kind of um, hangover. Strange, it's, isn't it? Strange Tales from Music Paper, very much in the freakful style, like a hangover from the independent comics of the, uh, the mid-'70s, quite Hunt Emerson and that kind of look. That needn't detain us. What needs to detain us is the competition winners and results. The Meet Joe Jackson winner is Catherine Sumner of Blundell Sands, Liverpool, not far from me. We must have passed like ships in the night. <laughs> I have no idea who all these other people are, but I made myself read it. And amongst the pa- amongst the runner-up winners, because you could win a Joe Jackson package or something, as we go right down to the bottom, a certain John Aislewood of Rotherham, Yorkshire, <laughs> wins a Joe Jackson package. Can this be the John Aislewood who went on to become one of Q Magazine's senior writers and interviewers? Can this be the John Aislewood who was part of the core Q team in years to come? Can this be the John Aislewood who insisted that Celine Dion is a better pop star than Joy Division because she sells more records? Is this the case? Is that John Aislewood? Listeners, you need to find out. <laughs> well, I, I was absolutely convinced that there would be somebody in here that we knew, and there we go. How many John Aislewoods can there be? Not that many. So there you go. And if it isn't, anyway, there you go. Congratulations on winning your Joe Jackson package. There's also a, a jam competition that's happened. And Andrew, did was this a story um, about you writing a letter to Paul Weller around this kind of time? Oh, yeah. This was years later when the, when the Style Council started. Um, by the way, one of the winners of a jam competition is Angela Window of East Ham. Angela Window. You can see right through it. The, years later, when the jam split up to everyone's shock and horror, um, Paul Weller's first Style Council gig was at the Liverpool Empire. Um, and it was like a little gig, like six songs or something like that, to everyone's surprise. And I was doing the school magazine at the time, and, and being naive, I thought, I'm going to go down, I'm going to get the scoop, I'm going to get the Paul Weller interview. And I thought you just turned up and said, hello, I'm from Day's High School magazine, will you do an interview? So I went and hung around by the stage door and said, I'd like to interview Paul, can I interview Paul? And the guy, the well, I now know was the bouncer stroke personal security, said, hold on a minute, I'll go and have a word. And he runs upstairs, and he comes back down and says, Paul can't do the interview now because he's just getting, you know, he's coming, winding down from the gig. But if you write your questions down, he'll answer them. So I wrote them down and passed on this bit of paper and put my address on the top. And 10 days later, Paul Weller's reply turned up in the post, handwritten. And I just, I just bought A. Harrison and it began, Dear A., Sorry, you didn't put your full first name. And he answered all my questions, which were really stupid ones. Like, one of them was, I see you're using drum machines on the Star Council records. Isn't this putting drummers out of work? Should you use machines for proper, you know, socialism? Think about it. Because well, I think it was some kind of a benefit gig, because all of his gigs are benefit gigs in those days. But he answered all the questions, handwritten, and he wrote them all out. And I still got the letter somewhere. It's in my mum's place somewhere. And 
to this day, I've always been very well disposed to Paul. Well, I haven't always liked his music, but I always think that's a good guy because hmm. he's not to know that, that this kid is going to go on and edit Q magazine, select, mix, mag, whatever, and, and have a role in the world of music. Um, he must have done that to just for just anybody. He, he will have been doing that for anybody. And I thought that is that you're discharging your responsibilities as a pop star very well. So, you know, Paul Weller. Good bloke. And I've interviewed him a couple of times subsequently. And I, I said, you did this, by the way. And he went, oh, yeah, he's doing it. I felt like I ought to do that because, you know, it's the fans, isn't it? So hats off to Paul Weller. <laughs> so we're into the back matter now. We're into we're into reviews. We're into the singles and the album reviews. And singles reviews by Dean Pearson, including short shrift for Gary Newman's We Are Glass, two thumbs up for Joan Amatrading's Me, Myself, I. Uh, she's really mean to Mark Perry. <laughs> Whole world down on me on Devon Fun City. Mark Perry becomes boring old fart, which some say has always been. All right, Diane, thanks for that. Yeah, quite quickly, you know, the word count on each review is, is getting shorter and shorter. Yeah. By the time she gets to um, Electric Light Orchestra, I'm Alive. Yeah, she's been a bit harsh, yeah. Near, near, near the end. A blatant lie product. Harsh. <laughs> Very harsh. Um, there are also reviews of singles by uh, The Regents. See you later. It's got a great video. Check that one out on the playlist. A bit of a plodder from Elton John. A reissue from Ella Fitzgerald, um, Sister Sledge, and uh, Record of the Week goes to Scottish post-punk band Flowers and their single, Ballad of Misdemeanour. Well, facing this, we've got the album reviews, which are, are artists of more consequence. Again, short shift for Paul McCartney's McCartney 2, 5 out of 10 from Red Star. Well, you pretty much know what to expect from Paul these days, unfortunately, and this one-man effort is no exception. More home movies in vinyl. Hmm. If you did that now, you'd be drummed out of the music press, wouldn't you? You'd be, <laughs> you'd be hanged, drawn and quartered. You'd be burnt at the stake outside the Mojo offices. I mean, I'd, I'd probably agree with it in that it, it's a very hit and miss album. It, it does have the absolute mm. banger Temporary Secretary on there. It's got Coming Up on there uh, and a couple of other great tracks. But then it's got stuff that kind of goes off on a very self-indulgent tangent that we probably didn't need to hear. But I see that um, down at the bottom, the beat, I just can't stop it. Gets a, a very well-deserved 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10 from Ian Jockey Craner, a man who clearly knew talent when he saw it, particularly <laughs> when he gave me work on the Smash Hits yearbook. So Ian Jockey Craner, a prince among men. Great album, a glorious stew of influences and styles here. Reggae rhythms and punk energy, great dance music with strong lyrics, fine melodies and good execution. Absolutely true. It still sounds great. I got a new stereo at Christmas and one of the first things I played on it was I Just Can't Stop It and I Just Can't Stop It sounded fantastic. <laughs> And now here's a weird one. So we turn the page, more more song lyrics, and it's Request Spot, requested by Noel Hegarty of Kinsale County Cork. And he's requested the lyrics to This Town Ain't Big Enough by Sparks, which had come out in 1974, then an eternity beforehand. And I think this is a very good choice because actually this lyrics to This Town Ain't Big Enough, this is proper reader service, this is utility. Those lyrics are incomprehensible in the recorded version, partly because of Russell's vibrato high operatic style and partly because they're just so compressed and it was a long time before I actually even really understood the lyrics myself although it is of course one of the greatest pieces of music ever written by anyone so this is this is proper reader service helping you understand what the lyrics are I wouldn't have transcribed this for 10p I'll tell you <laughs> I've got a choice a lot more an interesting thing about this is I don't know if you've seen the video for um, Coming Up by Paul McCartney but yes he does he kind of cameos different pop stars and uh, Ron he, he does a Ron doesn't he um, he does a Ron and, yeah. and this was from seven this was from six years before doing Top of the Pops and it was that image of Ron uh, 
was still kind of in the firmament six years later, you know. Scorched in everyone's mind, yeah. Scary Hitler keyboard man, you know. John Lennon said that, didn't he? Is that- How many times did he do Top of the Pops, like where he did that kind of still at the keyboard and looking scary and looking down the lens at the little kids? The Ron face. Well, I don't know. I mean, but that, that was quite a... Um, that was a way to show that you were not... You know, that pop music at that time was much more in the stranglehold of light entertainment than we tend to remember. It was quite seaside special. Mm. And you had to you had to show clear demarcation, clear blue water. What better way to do that than to look like a kind of 1920s jazz Hitler? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and get and just glare <laughs> at the view. Just glare down the barrel of the camera at the viewers while your falsetto male girl brother is cavorting in an operatic style that makes Freddie Mercury look like giant haystacks. <laughs> that was not surprising it made an impression, not surprising that people thought it was fantastic. And Sparks are finally getting their due, but they didn't for years. You know, it was a good 20 years after this time of big enough for the both of us. Well, OK, maybe after Beat the Clock and the Giorgio Moroder album, the number one in heaven stuff, which is regarded as this weird thing and now people understand just what an incredibly, you know, one hates to fall back on the music journalism cliche of influential, but they were influential more, you know, not just in the sense people wanted to sound like them, but people wanted to be disturbing like them. Mm. It was more punk than punk. Yeah. So, yeah, Sparks. I mean, certainly, um, you know, in, in the early 80s when, well, it was, what was it, 79, when I Beat the Clock and all the Giorgio Moroder stuff came out, and uh, I've got a brother and sister quite a bit older than me, and... I remember them telling me about Sparks and they'd seen them on top of the pops for um, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And they both told me how scared they were yeah. watching that performance. And, you know, six, five, six years later, they were still feeling that fear. And it was something that... that Pop music was quite frightening. Yeah, it really stuck with you. I mean, pretty much my earliest memory is David Bowie doing um, Life on Mars on what must have been the second time, it, when it was a hit second time around. So that would have been, what, 1974? Three, so I'd have been six, and it freaked the shit out of me, and I couldn't, because I, I didn't really understand the context. So I couldn't tell the difference between Top of the Pops and Doctor Who, and the news. It all seemed to be the same thing, and it it all seemed to have that same threatening, foreboding, and almost kind of H.P. Lovecraftian, what is going on outside our reality. This is what's going on outside our reality. This man is floating around in a, a you know, surrounded by weird gauzy dancers, and I I couldn't figure out whether he was going to get attacked by the sea devils or whether he was going to start reading the weather. It was all seemed to be part of the one, you know, the world was a frightening place, but also an interesting and kind of a fascinating place, and you wanted to, you know, both with Top of the Pops and with Doctor Who, I rem- quite remember quite vividly as a kid thinking, I've got to make myself watch this. I've got to, I've, you know, this is a challenge to me. I have to watch it. I have to sort of get come to terms with it because it was frightening. And now here we are on the back of that terrible decision. Look where I am now. <laughs> well, they used to do this this funny effect on, on Top of the Pops. It was kind of like a, a negative paint effect where, you know, certain elements of the screen would be saturated in, in a different colour. And that would scare me. That was a proper, you know, hiding behind the settee and, and, and peeking out to see, you know, to see when it had finished. Because it looked like Mott the Hoople had been shot by a Dalek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Would be the reason, or yeah. <laughs> that was why it was disturbing. 
Yeah. Also, I mean, the thin wall between Pan's people and whatever bunch of extras could be enacting some kind of pagan rite in a, a, a future space jungle while John Pertwee and Joe Grant tried to escape from, you know, something like that. They're probably the same actors. I definitely remember you used to see the same costumes recycled. So a costume <laughs> that two weeks previously had been on some space priestess would turn up on Pan's people and three weeks later it would turn up on a space pirate in Blake 7 because the BBC was spending your licence fee money wisely as it did in those days not like now (laughs) so anyway back to smash hits so we're turning the page there's more lyrics squeeze pulling muscles from the shell Another one which delivers a lot of reader value because they are complex lyrics. I'm interested in the fact that they have kind of replicated the Squeeze logo and typography, which is the early days of what Smash Hits will become very, very good at, which is making the pages feel part of the world of the pop stars using similar bits of typography. And this, again, would feed forward, weirdly, into Mojo, where Mojo's a huge part of the reason people Mm. love Mojo is that the feature on Iggy Pop will feel like an Iggy Pop artefact and the feature on Joy Division will feel like a Joy Division artefact and the feature on the band will feel like a the band artefact. It will be a beautiful object and Smash Hits is kind of grouping its way to becoming that beautiful object here. Obviously, without the resources and having to do everything with scalpels and cow gum and, and, you know, (laughs) reeling out type on hot wax and sticking it down on, on pasteboard and that kind of thing. But it's getting there. And there's a little, a little spot. There's the lyrics for Jonah Louie kitchen at parties. There's a little spot illustration of a man playing an accordion with musical notes popping out of him. Not for any reason. It's just an odd little kind of grace note that would become weirder and weirder as Smash Hits went on. I mean, my favourite lyrics page of all time in Smash Hits is obviously the Smith's Shoplifters of the World, where the art editor scans a Tesco bag and it's the background for Shoplifters of the World Mm. and gets into terrible trouble because Tesco is very annoyed that they're encouraging (laughs) shoplifting. But that was this is Smash Hits becoming a pop art item, an artefact in itself where objects and images and ideas and themes will all come be sucked out of the vortex and placed on the giddy carousel where they become in themselves art objects and smash hits at its zenith, at its the glory of its madness. Smash hits is a Warholian pop art experience, I believe, and really should be treated a lot with a lot more respect. Anyway, sorry, rambling on here, aren't we? And then <laughs> a very strange page, independent bits which is the world of the underground independent music. This is very strange. Well, the strangest thing is I've heard about almost nobody here, literally nobody, uh, until we turn the page. And here's half a page on uh, budding Liverpool group Wahis. <laughs> Take a good look at the guy in the middle. That's a budding superstar if ever there was one. Pete Wiley, that's him, dot, 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 dot. Liverpool's latest excellent export Wahis whose highly recommended Better Scream is currently number 11 in the singles charts, not with the indie charts. So, yeah, it's like the, the Crucial Three all get to appear in this edition of Smash Hits. But there's no mention of the Crucial Three anywhere as well, which is strange, because they say... It says something about... It was it was Pete's first band or something. Yeah. A band before, but Crucial Three doesn't get a mention. Which is contradicted elsewhere in the magazine where um, Julian Cope talked about getting kicked out of the body mail or something, so... Oh, Ian McCulloch. No, yeah, Ian McCulloch gets kicked out of Teardrop Explodes, yeah. but they don't mention Crucial 3. Do That's it, Teardrop Explodes, yeah. And poor Ian Curtis. It, uh, just a, a very short three three sentences. It is with sadness that we have to report that Ian Curtis, lead singer with Joy Division, was found dead in his flat the weekend before last. At the time of going to press, the cause of death was unknown, though Ian hadn't been well for some time. Our sympathy goes to his family and friends, as well as the other members of this fine band. 
And that's it. <laughs> that's all you get. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, that's kind of um, that was this the space that pop music occupied at the time, and certainly nobody would have had the kind of mental furniture to be able to deal with the suicide of Ian Curtis. It was kind of um, this sort of stuff didn't happen in pop music, and it would be only four or five years later that something like that would have produced the full souvenir issue with twenty pages of looking back pictures, reports, all the rest of it. I did one with Kurt Cobain. It was, you know, a mammoth thing and inevitably sold unimaginable amounts because people really wanted it. Um, but I don't know that what would have happened if Smash Hits had put Ian Curtis' R.I.P. on the front of this edition. I know that around the same time, Kerrang! were able to put Bon Scott R.I.P. on the front and the readers would get it and would, would really love it. But it was almost like this is from outside the reality of Smash Hits. They would not have had the mental furniture to be able to deal with it. Yeah. So yeah, it's a that is a fascinating thing and so so tiny and inconsequential. I actually missed it running through then, as you as you can tell. I didn't. I just thought it was. A, I didn't realize it actually was uh, reporting the death of Ian Curtis. I was going to say, Andrew, when when you're editing a magazine and a big pop star dies like that, what what's it like? You know, what emotions kind of go through your head? Are you thinking, oh shit, we've got to we've got to pull this together? And you know, how easy is it to kind of get things? At a last minute and pull stuff stories together. You pull in a lot of all nighters, or well, um, it, I would say it's been it's been different every time. Kurt Cobain was the big one because you were instantly completely surprised and not remotely surprised um, mm. because he'd already tried to kill himself in a way that Courtney Love tried to explain away very inexpertly. Everybody knew he was in the state. Um, and that was the one occasion when Danny Kelly, who was editing Q at the time, he and I had to kind of coordinate our efforts to be different from one another. And it was like, well, we are, we're for the fans of Nirvana. You know, the people who read Select love Nirvana will be absolutely devastated by this. The people who read Q at the time wouldn't have been. Q was very much in its simply read phase of the, mm. that kind of music. That's just coming off the the Simply Red Dire Straits cusp and starting to become interested in this stuff. So Q's take on it was, I think the cover line was why Kurt Cobain had to die. It was, it wasn't, it was very lurid. Um, it was quite detached and it was quite, um, it was, it was quite uh, investigative, shall we say. It was, this is a story, but it wasn't, this is going to hit home mm. to you and devastate you. And our, our, ours was, Quite a, I have to say, quite a soulful picture, a black and white picture of Kurt Cobain, and the cover lines were "I hate myself and I want to die," the life and death of Kurt Cobain, or something, something like that. So we had to be enormously respectful because the the readers were, you know, poleaxed by it, and Q didn't. Q, Q could do something, you know, quite different. But we were very clear that we didn't want to do just a picture of Kurt Cobain with the date of birth and date of death, that steaming cliche that. Hmm. you would see everywhere else because you had to do more with it and you had to go into it and understand it a bit more. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's always that question of, you know, you, you are, you've got your human reaction, which is, a, you know, shock and sort of pity that this, this should happen to someone. Then you've got your work reaction, which is what well, we have to deliver on this because people are expecting it. So what do we do? Um, hmm. I still, th I, I regret not putting um, Adam Yauk on the front of Q magazine when he died because uh, I was there then and I think we bottled it really we should have gone no this is this is huge but that magazine was then in such a kind of a, a knot and a tangle of um shall we say competing stakeholders that it was like 
you look at it and you go so but i i i, sh- I should have gone no we're, we're sweeping the cover clean and we're putting them on the front mm. but you know um different every time we come now to the letters page just the letters no response from uh, an editor of any type um again you know this was the social media of its day and there's a fierce debate raging about whether whether the police are sexist. There's another fierce debate raging about who's a plastic mod and who's a real mod. Anita and Tracy from Rugby are saying it doesn't matter uh, what bands look like as long as the music is brilliant. What does it matter if it's mod or scar? As long as it's good. We like both kinds of music. Jack, modder and rude girl from Stoke says, it really annoys me that there are some people out there claiming to be original mods while leaving us others with the title of plastic mods just because you wear badges that say special source selector. And she goes on to make the case that Scar was always a part of mod. But my favourite letter is from a rocket on my way to Mars. And this is what I mentioned before. Claire from South Wales asked where a lot of records would be if people liked the tunes but ignored them because they disliked the lyrics. The answer is obvious, where they should be, gathering dust on record store shelves. Should we all sing the horse vessel song simply because it has a catchy tune, even (laughs) if the lyrics pay tribute to Hitler? Would Claire buy a record in which the music was brilliant, only the lyrics were in praise of nuclear warfare? She raises a good point, does a rocket on her way to Mars. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't go as so far as say the horse was. It's got a catchy tune, but it's a fair point. The issues of the day. We have yet to that we have yet to meet Black Type. There aren't any replies to the letters. Black Type has not appeared yet. It's still very much the you know, the unmediated voice of the people. Yeah, because in, in the era of Black Type, it turned into more of like a, a running commentary and the, the letters were almost, you know, a, a thing within itself and not about the magazine yeah. necessarily. It becomes a wild piece of performance art where the readers and Black Type are trying to outdo one another yeah, yeah. and people are sending in letters from, you know, Nick Kershaw snood of Berkhamsted <laughs> and that kind of thing. <laughs> Dear Sir Blackie of Type. Whereas this is more like, you know, um, letters into points of view, you know, it's like, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why? Why, oh, why, yeah, stop many, right? <laughs> Very tribal as well, you know, between the mods and the heavy metalers. And... You better not show your face around Edinburgh. One of many <laughs> mod haters in Edinburgh, that's how they sign themselves, says, sorry, chum, you're in the minority, to so slip into your parker, hop onto your scooter and knit round to the nearest phone box where the Mod Appreciation Society are holding their annual meeting. Mm. The burning question of mod. Anyway, so that's the letters. Very, very feisty. Lots of um, fighting about mod. And also on the letters page, we find an advert for the very first Smash It's t-shirt that you could send off for for uh, £2.80. includes uh, postage and packing. Modelled by some people who very much got the um, the look of Jordan from um, <laughs> Jordan from the Great Rock and Roll Swindle. There's a lot of spiky hands, a dog collar. And they're in the they're in the doorway of what appears to be one of the crappy shops on uh, Carnaby Street. You know when Carnaby Street really was at the dog end of its of its existence. And it, I went there once in the late so it stunk of piss and was absolutely <laughs> in the filth. But the walls covered in graffiti, including NF and swastikas. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Oops. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? Joseph Besser is a wanker. It says here. <laughs> e- Ealing Ealing Anarchy Crew. So I would have thought that in today's, you know, uh, in a few years' time after this picture was taken, they probably were a bit more careful about that. A bit of Tipex on there, I think, yeah. Pay a bit more attention to this stuff, smash it, perhaps it wouldn't be in the state we're in now. So the inside back cover is the lyrics to I Am Alive by ELO, doubtless because of their terrible review. It's been hidden on the inside back cover. Although I always thought the inside back cover was good property, you know, it's a great place to be. People sort of read magazines in the back, 
And next, the next issue advert, in the next issue of Smash Hits, Matchbox, orchestral maneuvers in colour, not like in black and white, like you just read them 20 pages previously, <laughs> and Human League LPs to be won. That's it. That's thin gruel, isn't it? <laughs> I'd be perfectly happy with OMD in colour in a Human League LP right now. It's almost a good night in as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. The Human League LP in question would have been um, Travelogue. Fantastic. And then we turn the page and a portal into the future. Literally the future because replacing um, Dexter's Night Runners. Human League poster. Smash hits of the Human League live before the girls. Photograph Jill Fermanovsky. So Phil's singing with the hair. Um, Ian Craig Marsh and Martin Ware are in that kind of computery cage that they've got. Yeah. Martin Ware's singing, which I didn't think he did, but evidently oh, yeah, he did. No, yeah, did backing vocals. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And projected, presumably by Adrian White, are the slides, uh, which you can see uh, the monkeys had. Is that Headquarters? I don't know if it's just called Head anyway. Headquarters. Yeah, it's one of their albums. Oh, there you go. And also The Man From Uncle. So what we're seeing here is we're, we're seeing a portent of the future of two different futures. We're seeing, obviously, the future where the human league will stop being a standing joke and become the towering electronic abba that they become when poor Ollie and Craig Marsh and Martin were, uh, make the wrong decision. Um, but also, with the monkeys and the mantra uncle and the kind of the appearance of the slides, we are also seeing the other feature of Saint Etienne, uh, the postmodern feature of pop music where it's about the things you know about, where you can just drop a little bit of a signifier in there and go, actually, I know who Adrian Poster is. Actually, I know who Eusebio is. Actually, I've seen this film. I've been to this place. And it's strange because people forget that the Human League were really probably the first to do this, weren't they? The idea they they had somebody on slides, they had someone on visuals. And unlike the previous kind of dispensation of visuals, which was show an oil lens and shine some lights through it, they would hit you with signifiers, you know, they'd hit you with a bit of an old film, a bit of an old TV thing, a city, a location, a face, and these would trigger immediate associations. And this, that, would then become the currency of pop music in years to come. But it would also be the art and noise where sampling and the borrowing of bits of all the bits of music would become triggers in the mind. Pop music would become mnemonic. It would become a set of triggers. So and I thought it was quite fitting that that's the last thing you see in this. The addition of Smash Hits, which announces the death of Ian Curtis, also announces the future. And, of course, the Human League, before they were called the Human League, were called... The Future. The future. So there you go. <laughs> How about that? So if it's this fascinating now, a remove of 40 years, how interesting is this edition of Smash It's going to be in a 1,000 years when you've buried it in a time capsule and future humans dig it out and start to decode it, which they definitely will. <laughs> because I, I think it's, it's actually a very interesting time capsule of pop music at that time because it feels much edgier and much more alternative than we might yes. might remember it. And certainly as the 80s go on and the artists that Smash It's have championed have become those fully-fledged bona fide pop stars, it then moves mm. into the mainstream. But at this point, it feels like it's, it's very much almost part of alternative culture. But that's the story of pop in the 80s, isn't it? Yeah. Pop in the 80s is how alternative weirdos became the big pop stars. So Martin Fry, Soft Cell, Boy George, Adam Ant, these people were all punks. You know, even Duran Duran in their own way. Anybody, you know, Toya, we forget how vast, vastly huge Toya was for a while. Um, and, you know, this is the, the Dave Rimmer thesis, isn't it? You know, this is how post-punk consumed pop music and ate it alive. You know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, the entire world of ZTT is is, is from this. It's 
it's School of Malcolm McLaren. You've you've read too many weird books, you've seen too many weird films, was what nourished mainstream pop. And when that ebbed away, because people were either too old or there was no original source material to, to nourish the next generation, that's kind of when pop starts to settle down and coagulate and become a bit less exciting. You know, the, the gulf between what pop was like in 1983 and 1984 and what it was like in 1986 and 1987. It's like going off the Atlantic shelf. And there's, and we've all seen it on the, the, the top of the pops repeats as <laughs> the absolute dire garbagey state of pop music in 1987. And then Jackie Body turns up and they don't know what to do with it, but it sounds amazing. And then S Express turn up and they're not playing their instruments. They're capering about with stupid outfits on and it's amazing. There's a, there was a need for that to happen because the kind of wave of pop music made by people like Phil Oakey and Martin Ware and Martin Fry, all Northerners, by the way. Yeah. Sheffield in it. Mm. And the Bunnymen and Julian Cope and, you know, all that lot has, has, has crashed. And you're left with people who are, you're left with less interesting people. You're left with living in a box, you know, <laughs> who perhaps don't have the hinterland. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting. Um, you talk about you know how music changed again in, in the late eighties when you hear Jack Your Body, S Express, and that's when we think that Smash It starts to struggle with its pop stars and, and who to feature in the mag. The writing in the magazines is is absolutely excellent, but they are starting to kind of flounder a little bit on who to put on on the covers. Well, Smash, Smash Hits have got addicted to it. It, it happens to all successful things. It became enormously successful and becomes addicted to the thing that's making it successful and therefore can't wean itself off. So Jason and Kylie, you know, it's kind of the zenith of smash hits because they're, you know, some of the music's great. A lot of Kylie's music is great. Jason's music is not really of any worth. Um, But they're great pop stars. They sell a lot of magazines. You know, all the girls want to be her. All the boys want to hang around with her. And, uh, you know... The way that Stock Aiken Waterman reduced pop to a kind of a, a science of components and yet still managed to find a lot of magic in it. You know, there are amazing Stock Aiken Waterman records. And when you hear them again, I'm quite surprised how, how a lot of it does have that rawness of kind of like Inner City and that very first techno album. It's really abrasive and quite exciting. But Smash Hits have got to a point where it's selling a million copies a fortnight and often well, putting people like the mission on the front yes. for my Jason and Kylie. But it's a brave person who's going who's gonna to mess around with the formula. And the way it was told to me over beers around that time was for years and years and years, marketers and publishers used to say, why are you putting people like the mission on the front? It should always just be Jason and Kylie or things like Jason and Kylie. And yeah. Smash It's editors would say, no, putting the mission or Zig Zig Sputnik or Neil from the Young Ones or... You know, it was weird. Robert Smith or Morrissey or Pete Burns putting these people on the front is what makes it smash hits. And that was when I used to read it when I was a student. I would religiously read Q, NME and smash hits for the full everything. And numerous, you know, repeated smash hits editors refused to listen to that saying, no, we've got to keep the mix up because the mix is what makes it what it is. And then eventually people started acquiescing a bit. And then before long, you're trying to sell a magazine on the back of big fun or yell or you know these kind of third string shit basically you know stuff that wasn't it wasn't good it was you know it, you know it, it, it was it was objectively poor and then time moves on and you then you're kind of stuck with new kids on the block who are you know have a much more distant relationship with they're not you know boys next door 
and it gets a bit of a it gets a bit of a bounce out of Take That, who are boys next door, but the but the format has been then frozen in absolutely stuck in in amber. It must be a good looking boy band. So when Kurt Cobain turns up, I don't recall how or if they covered Nirvana, but when this is the hottest, biggest thing for anybody under the age of twenty, and by the way, the girls all fancy him. Some of the boys fancy him too, which is also an important part of Smash Hits always has been. You can't get there from here. You can't get to Nirvana from Big Fun. Mm. They've moved too far away. You, you've gone on the board. You've moved to a, you've moved to a square on the board where you can't get there. And and actually, ten years later, I was finding that with when in my sad, very brief involvement with Smash Hits, it's like two thousand and one, and I'm like, we should do the Strokes. They're like, you know, good looking lads. All the girls fancy them. They're sexy, and the music's great. But when you when the magazine has been trotting out X Factor garbage for two years, and actually because it had been edited by someone who just had no sympathy or interest in pop music, hadn't really done anything other than just treat it as a an overpriced poster mag with not really much content to it, um, you couldn't get there from there. You could not you could not get to the Strokes from I don't know. Think, think of it. Think you, you can't get from Gareth Gates to the Strokes. <laughs> you just can't. At its, at its, you know, it, it, it won't go. So at its height, Smash Hits had been an exciting magazine about pop music for people with a, a bit of a working brain, right? It, 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 it excited you at every level. It was sexy. It was funny. It was interesting. It delivered information. It delivered real reader value. You could trust it. One of the most important things about it, by the way, was, and the reason it prospered in the 80s, was unlike the tabloids, which had got addicted to pop as well, Smash Hits didn't run around trying to find out who your favourite pop star was shagging or whether they were on drugs or whether they were drunk. Whereas the nauseating things like Bizarre and Jill Pringle and John Blake and Piers Morgan and all these guys, they were just looking for the dirt because it shifted their kinds of papers. But Smash Hits readers didn't want dirt on the pop musicians. They wanted the pop musicians to be brilliant and funny and clever and colourful and happy mm. hence the euphemisms summer cold bit of a headache you know rock and roll mouthwash rock and roll mouthwash <laughs> been up a bit late Look, looking a little studio tan meanwhile in real life you know syringes hanging out the arm and gigantic load of you know load of coke all over their face but that would never that, that never made it into smash hits um because the fans that you know the readers love the pop music and that was how they're also that was how the magazine was able to get access but in its in its later years in its dotage it had spent too much time just trying to kind of mine the boy band thing when the boy bands were getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and so it meant it couldn't take advantage of the news and it had this happens to all magazines you know poor old select stayed on the Britpop bus too long and, you know, when you're trying to sell magazines on the basis of putting the bloody seahorses on the front, <laughs> who nobody cares about, not even the people in the seahorses care about the seahorses. It's just insulting to everybody. But you can't... Who wants to buy that fucking magazine? Who wants to work on that fucking magazine? Do you know what I mean? So it's like the magazines that have been able to extend their lives or were able to, because we may have actually come to the end of magazines now, sadly, but the ones that had the... The, the bottle and the ability to evolve and to change, which the face always did. My favourite face was never the early 80s face. It was never the beetroot, you know, Spandau Ballet, 
Steve Dagger face. It was the late 80s, early 90s rave face, the Cheryl Garrett face, when it was Summer of Love, when it was Kylie and Madonna, but it was also baggy and house music and very kind of democratic. It was it changed. It was able to change and evolve. And Smash Hits kept changing and changing and evolving and evolving until it reached a point where it was just too successful to be allowed to change because there'll always be somebody in a planning meeting who says, we can't do that. That's too dangerous, too much money riding on it. And when that happens, you are on the road to decline, sadly. Well, I think that's probably a good point to close the page on this issue of Smash. It's Andrew, thank you so much for that rather in-depth exploration of the MAGA. I think we covered a lot of ground. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's good to know. And uh, thanks to you for listening. Come and say hello to us at Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And also check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll find the links to the edition of Smash It that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists for that extra layer of experience. Don't forget you can help support us by buying us a coffee. It's ko-fi.com slash giddypoppod. ko-fi.com slash giddypoppod. And we hope you can join us next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye! Bye. Bye. <laughs> and yes, listener, it was that John Hazelwood. <laughs> <laughs>